Welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology, and Happy New Year! Today we'll be discussing the article titled Whole Brain Mapping of Somatosensory Responses in Awake Marmosets Investigated with Ultra-High Field FMRI. This article was published December 11, 2020. Joining me today are Editor-in-Chief Nino Ramirez, first author Justine Cleary, and senior author Stefan Everling. So let's get started. Hi, everybody. Justine, hello, and Stefan, hello. It's a wonderful honor for me to, to have you today, and we'll talk about your exciting study, which really grabbed my attention. I think will grab the attention of all our listeners and also our readers. And so let me start with the first questions. You know, uh, Stefan, there are increasing numbers of fMRI studies in humans and also non-human primates. Why did you choose the Marmoset as a model? Can you explain us a little bit about this? Yeah, sure, Nino. Um, so let me start maybe in general. So marmosets have become a very popular additional non-human primate model. I mean, people have used marmosets probably already for the last like 30 years or so, but only in the last five to 10 years, there really has been this big surge in interest in marmosets. And it's because of several reasons. So marmosets are small non-human primates. So marmoset only weighs like 350 grams compared to like a 15 kilo macaque monkey which also then means they are easier to house. So you can house more animals together in the same space. They are a lot easier to handle because they're so small and they're a lot safer to handle because they don't carry B virus. So macaque monkeys can carry B virus, means they're level two species, whereas marmosets, they're level one species the same as a rodent. So a lot easier to handle. They're also a lot easier to breed. So marmosets already reach sexual maturity at about like 18 months. They get dizygotic twins twice a year. So you can have like four offspring every year. So it makes it a lot more feasible to breed the animals. This is what we're doing now. We're breeding our own marmosets. And this is also the reason why um, marmosets are probably really good transgenic non-human primate model. And this really triggered this search in the interest in marmosets really. It started in 2009 with a paper on Nature by Erika Sasaki, who basically created the first transgenic non-human primate model in marmosets. From our interest, um, the other advantage of what they have is they have a lysencephalic cortex, so they have a smooth cortex. And that's a big advantage because it means that pretty much all the areas in like the frontoparietal cortex are really on the surface, right? So they're a lot easier to access. For example, uh, if you're interested, let's say in eye movements, um, frontal eye fields, intraparietal areas, so these parietal cortical areas, they're all on the surface. So if you want to do laminar recordings, they're easier to access, they're easier to access probably for uh, two-photon imaging. Same thing, there's no central sulcus in the marmoset. So if you're interested in motor cortex, somatosensory cortex, all these areas are on the surface. So that's a big advantage. They're probably also really interesting for pro-social behavior because they actually, they actually show more social behavior than macaque monkeys. So for example, um, they uh, show observational learning and they also do cooperative breeding. So the entire family is involved in caring for the offspring in marmosets. So the dad is actually really involved in that too. So this is also again, more similar to humans. Um, specifically for imaging, there's a real big advantage. So because marmosets are so small, you can actually use these really high ultra field fMRI machines that are, were designed for rodents primarily. So we are using here a 9.4 Tesla scanner and you would not be able to fit a macaque monkey into that scanner. So that scanner is really built for mice and for rats. 
but a marmoset set can fit into the scanner. So that's a big advantage. So this gives us a really exquisite resolution in terms of functional resolution and also anatomical resolution. And the strong field really gives us, I mean, just more signal to noise. So we get better signal also in subcortical areas. And also for future studies, when we want to look at laminar resolution, this is probably a lot more feasible in the marmoset set than it would be in a macaque. Stefan, that's uh, fascinating. And you convinced me. It's an amazing Good. model. And, uh, but I also know the reality is very tough. And I was really amazed, uh, Justine, uh, that you did these studies in awake monkeys. I mean, this must have been a great experimental challenge to train these monkeys and to get these recordings. And so could you describe us in more detail the methods that you use, the challenges that you encountered? Yeah, so Marmoset have some advantage compared to macaque because before I was uh, doing fMRI with macaque and Marmoset are more easy to handle. So for the training, we, it just lasts three weeks. So we just train the Marmoset to the setup. Like, so we have an animal, an animal holder system to fit for the MRI. So we train them to this system, to this Sphinx position, to the MRI noise. And over three weeks, step by step, we go through uh, this different uh, restriction system. And after three weeks, your animal is ready to MRI. So it's less challenging compared to macaque, but it's still not like a rodent. So our lab has developed a five-channel helmet coil for the MRI to fix the animal head. So we have to do a surgery to fix the animal to avoid to have any movement. And mammals are quite good to habituate to this system too. So it's really a good model. Um, particularly for this task, uh, it was a passive task. So we don't need to train them to do something specific. Um, the big challenge that we have is we use a tactile stimulation and this tactile stimulation was an air puff. The mammoth skin is thicker and there is a lot of hair compared to human. And we use uh, the Galileo stimulus system, which is a pneumatic uh, system who allowed to deliver air puff. And this system was designed for human and more particularly to stimulate face and finger, which is really sensitive part in human. So our first concern was to be sure that our mammoth can feel the tactile stimulus. But so we play with the pressure, but we don't want to have a too strong pressure because the aim is not to have a painful stimulation. So what we did, we shave the leg and the arm of the animal before each session to directly tape the stimulus not around uh, directly to the skin. So around the arm and leg. For the face stimulation, we put the stimulus not towards the lower part of the face to be sure that the air, so the air puff, did not go to directly to the eyes to avoid to have bling reflex or to be aversive. And overall, the animals are really react really well to this stimulation. They didn't freak out or try to escape. So it was good. Another challenge that we faced was the task design. It's how many body parts we can stimulate, the left, the right. So we just chose to, to use one hemisphere, so one side for setup uh, limitation because we don't have a big space. As Stefan said, we use a small animal scanner 
So it's really a small space, so we cannot have a lot of tube and thing around the animal. So we need to deal with this. So we chose to have the face because it's the main part of the body, the arm and the leg for this first study. But it will be interesting in the future to try to have all the body, the left and right to see how it looks. Justine, thanks so much. Well, look, I'm not a marmoset, but maybe I'm bold. So you wouldn't have all these problems to shaving me, but uh, it sounds very, very tough what you handled. And yeah, impressive. Uh, Stefan, I have a question for you now. Now, most of the fMRI studies were done in anesthetized animals and you did now the awake. So what differences did you find? And one question that always comes up to is, you know, anesthesia causes a general dampening of activity. Did you find also specifically that certain areas were more dampened, whereas others were more active? So what's your impression here? Question. So in, in this particular study, we actually only did the awake animals. We didn't even do the anesthetized. But in the past, we actually published a paper where we compared uh, resting state fMRI. So resting state fMRI is there's no task. The animal is just doing nothing. So it's a really popular tool in, in human studies to resting state fMRI. And we compared resting state fMRI in awake mammal sets and anesthetized mammal sets. And there are similarities and there are differences. So overall, the networks that you get look very similar, but they are a lot weaker, as you expect, as you said. Anesthesia dampens the activations, right? They're weaker, and especially in frontal cortex, you actually lose activations. For the somatosensory system, so for this type of simulation, so we didn't do, we didn't compare awake and anesthetized. But my colleague Alfonso Silva actually did that a few years ago. They only stimulated one side, uh, so on, only on the uh, only on the wrist, I think. And they found that the responses in cortical areas were markedly reduced under anesthesia. Thalamic responses were really reduced under anesthesia, and they didn't find any activation in the basal ganglia in the anesthetized preparation. So I think, especially if you do task-based fMRI you really want to use an awake animal. And I know that uh, a, colleague of my, uh, a colleague of mine, he was also co-author on this paper, Andrew Pruszynski. He did a study where they used macaque monkeys under awake and under anesthetized conditions. And they found under anesthesia, they essentially could not evoke any somatosensory responses in the macaque. And with the normal ana um, anesthetics like isoflurane or propofol, for that you really need different types of anesthetics there. Very fascinating. Yeah. And I think you, you addressed one aspect that I wanted to also raise as a question. You know, at the subcortical level, you described this and in your papers that there's a somatotopic body representation in the thalamus and for the first time also in marmosets in the putamen. So one question is, you know, is this because you did awake animal? The second question is, this looks similar to the organization in old and old world monkeys and uh, in humans. So do you think that this subcortical somatotopic organization was already established before you get the old and the new world primates? So could you elaborate on these evolutionary aspects perhaps? Yeah, so, um, so it, it was before like in macaque and in humans that you can see this um, somatotopic body representation in both putamen and thalamic. So I really think that this uh, really came early in the evolution why it's because the tactile system is really important and play a really important role in primate like this system is strongly elicited 
we use like every day we use our hands to explore to build to communicate even in primate like marmoset or macaques make a lot of grooming and it's a kind of communication so this system is always used and the thalamus and the putamen are really two key structure in primate the thalamus because it relays the information and the putamen because it plays a central role in motor skill and learning so it's really two important structure and i think it's because this came earlier in the evolution that it allowed us to do all of these amazing things that we can do today that's cool yeah and and along these lines now, when it, when it comes to the somatotopic organization, the somatosensory cortex, you found some things that were different than you expected, you know, and uh, maybe can you talk about this? Is this like a functional adaptation or what's the significance of these findings? So please tell us about it. Yeah. Yes, for sure. So one of the main difference with all data compared to anesthetized um, invasive method is, so we used a airproof. So above, we have a skin stimulation. So we should stimulate cutaneous receptor. And literature have shown that the area 3A and 1 and 2 are not responsive or really at a lower rate. They didn't respond a lot to skin stimulation. But in all data, we can see in the map that these activations are quite large. But interestingly, in literature, they also show that these areas are strongly connected to areas 3B and S2, which are really highly responsive to skin stimulation. And we use fMRI. So it means that what we observe are not just directly the activation, so the direct impact of the stimulation, but also all the connectivity network. So this map that we observe may be a direct result of this connectivity network. So it will be interesting to check with other kind of stimulation if we observe the same map or if we can have different kind of of um, connectivity network depending of the kind of stimulation. The, the other difference it's more between like marmoset and the other primate. Like uh, one of the big questions that also it's raised by our article it's about the areas one and two. So in macaques and human these two areas are really well separated with specific function. In Marmoset, it still knows that if there is just area one, if area two exists, if it's confirmed. So, because in our paper, we can see that the activation is quite large too in this area. So it would be really interesting to understand if this difference between these species, it's an evolutionary specialization, like maybe due to the brain size, because the mammoth brain size is really small and they did not have a lot of space. So this would be interesting to check. Speaking of small size uh, and brain size, I mean, that's one of the reasons probably why the, the mammoths are lysencephalic. And as Stefan already alluded, that helped you to gain detailed insights in the subcortical connectivity cortical resting state networks in awake marmosets was possible. And so one of the question is that more and more research points towards individualized, individualized connectivity maps. So you use fingerprinting. So if you look at your findings in the individual subject space, do you find in individual variabilities that could be functionally interesting? We didn't really look at that in that much detail. So what you can see in the figure, so we, we definitely see differences between the animals, whether these are real differences or 
whether they are related to, for example, how awake is each animal. Also, like other changes in the signal to noise ratio between different brains. So it, it's hard to really talk about individual differences from these data, but we could definitely investigate that further. So if you would do more, would run more imaging sessions on the individual monkeys. Yeah, and also this difference in the individual map may may also be due to the setup process. So like for every new scan, we need to shave again the arm to replace the stimulus node. So between each scan, the exact position are not exactly necessarily the same. And sometimes the animal may be more sensitive or not. So with this study, it's really hard to really uh, take a look at this because there is too lot of variabilities to say that, yeah, no, it's the difference between individual results are just the position of the stimulus. Yeah, thanks, uh, Justine. I think it's important to always remember, you know, that the experimental paradigm affects what you see. So, yeah, fascinating. Now, why don't we stay with the lysencephalic question? You know, do you think that they became lysencephalic secondarily in evolution? You tell you what other people think. So, I mean, for, for the longest time, people thought that the mammoth said really represents like the, the kind of like a primitive primate in a sense. And that this is, um, that the lysencephalic brain is like the simple primate brain. There's now more evidence actually that the ancestors of marmosets were actually considerably larger and they probably also had a gyroencephalic brain. So the brain is more gyri. And in many ways, marmosets are not really just primitive primates. They are actually highly specialized primates. So one thing, for example, marmosets don't have an opposable thumb anymore. So they have claws, which is very different. So they are pretty much the only primates that actually have that, the marmosets. So, um, and they spent essentially their entire life in the tree. Right? So they're in trees. Um, also in terms of their food, what they do is they actually go to a tree, they bite a hole into the bark and they wait for the sap to run. And then they lick the sap. They spend like 50% of their time doing that. So that's their main type of foraging. So I think the lysencephalic brain is probably a consequence of the reduced body size. So you find that in general, I mean, you find that the same in, in mice, for example, right? So they also have a lysencephalic brain and most probably also because it's, it's a secondary lysencephalization that you see there. Um, why small brains are lysencephalic is not really known, right? I mean, theoretically, they could be gyroencephalic. And people have speculated that there's just, I mean, there might be the, ener the, the energy cost might be too high, or maybe there's also really no benefit to increase the surface that much, or it might just not work in terms of, I mean, the myelin just may take up too much space then. So, I mean, we can't really answer that, but most likely this is not really a primitive primate brain. It's the most specialized primate brain, really. Thanks, Stefan. Yeah, it would be kind of interesting to see whether this lysencephalus was kind of induced by similar genes that we know in humans cause lysencephaly, you know, and uh, which brings me kind of to the question of what are the implications for disease and translational medicine uh, based on your study? I'd like to come back to the first point, to the previous point about yeah, the gyrocephalus. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. There's actually some evidence that this varies a little bit between animals. You can actually find some animals, some marmosets that have like hints of like a gyrus of gyri, where you see a little bit more of like a central sulcus, 
we see a little bit more of an uh, of intraparietal sulcus. So in some animals, it's stronger than the other animals. So there's variation, which is going to be, I think, very interesting from a genetic point also. Right? So it could be a really interesting model for, for brain evolution. But now I'm going to come to your point about uh, a clinical model. Yeah, so I think uh, our study has some clinical implications because the somatosensory system is actually a really good model system for neuroplasticity. Yeah, there are a lot of studies also traditionally, a lot of studies in, in rodents and I mean, even in raccoons. But I think the marmoset is going to be a really good non-human primate model for that. And the biggest advantage is that we can use the same technique that we can also use in humans, fMRI. Right? So we can use the exact same manipulations. For example, we can look at, at the effects of nerve damage. We can look at the effects of amputation, for example. We can look at the effects of cortical reorganization or subcortical reorganization with fMRI. But then in the marmoset, we have the big advantage that now we can also apply more invasive recording techniques that we can't apply in humans. For example, we can in insert high density microelectrodes or we can do two photon imaging. So we can really follow it up with these techniques. So I think the marmoset really has, has great potential as a translational animal model there. So it really can bridge studies in humans with a lot more invasive techniques then. Stefan, I think that's a very important point that you just mentioned because you know, for those that don't do fMRI, you know, fMRI is sometimes a little bit of voodoo science, you know, in so far as, you know, what do you really measure? Is it like really neural activity or, you know, what is the metabolic changes that are related to your activity? And if you could combine it, you know, with, uh, let's say, neural recordings in it, this animal and whole brain recordings, I mean, then it would be really very powerful. Uh, absolutely. And I mean, you don't have to do it necessarily at the same time, right? But, but you can do it in the same animal the same animals. For example, mm -hmm. you can use now, I mean, we, we're doing this in my lab now, we're using your pixel recordings. So you can actually record from hundreds of cells at the same time in, in, in cortical areas. So fascinating. Do you think that you can do also optogenetics, probably viral vector injections? Absolutely. absolutely. I mean, uh, we haven't done this in my lab yet, but other groups are doing this already. Absolutely. So it's definitely possible to do optogenetics and you can combine it then, right? You can absolutely. You can yeah. tag specific. So basically all the nice tools that we have in the rodent world, a lot of them we can also then apply to marmosets. Fantastic. So, I mean, like now we're talking already about it. So what are the next steps from here? Where, where do you want to go with this project? Sure. Ask Justine, maybe. And yeah. Justine can, Justine can tell you where she wants to go and I can tell you where I want to go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, one of the aim of this project was to understand what's happened in the tactile system. And we all, already perform another study with visual dynamic stimuli. Why? Because we know a lot of things about marmoset, but about anesthetized marmoset or all of this world. And now we need to understand what's happening in awake marmoset and more in high uh, level cognitive processes. So we know that, okay, visual, tactile, this seems conserved across primate, but how about high level cognitive function? And I'm interested particularly about multisensory integration process and social interaction, because uh, we are talking about translational medicine and disease, and I have some interest about um, autism research. And multisensory integration is one of the parts where we can see deficit or differencing in marmoset. And I think that the marmoset can be a really good model to study autism. That's a wonderful project. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, autism, I mean, that's why one of my questions was this individual variability, 
is, you know, how can you detect these details between, you know, social interaction from one individual versus the other? And can you find some underlying mechanisms? So that's great project, Justine. Now you get, <laughs> not, now do you have to get a lab, huh? But, yeah, I'm Absolutely. sure. There will be one. She's looking for it. And <laughs> one day I'm going to lose her, my lad. Yes. Good. All the, read, all the listeners, listen up. So, but Stefan, what's your plan? Well, one thing what we're actually also doing now, and actually Justine is doing this, we are trying to do some social experiments in marmosets in the scanner. So the idea is not to image one marmoset, but to image two marmosets at the same time. Wow. So marmosets actually eventually interacting with each other in the scanner and imaging both brains at the same time. So this is what we are working on right now. And, and yeah. you actually can do that? So you, you have like two well, scanners? Well, or? You, you, you can do this. Um, you really can't do this in, the, in our nice 9.40 Tesla scanner because the, the field is not big enough to get two brains in, in the center of the field. So for that, we're actually using a 3T human scanner with very specially developed hardware. So, I mean, we, we're losing some resolution there, but um, we can actually image two brains at the same time while animals are facing each other, yeah. Wow. So one day we'll have a podcast between all of us and while monitoring- Absolutely, we can do that Default then. states, yes. 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 Oh my God, where's my amygdala going right now? So yeah. it will be fascinating. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, Stefan and, and Justine, what important take-home messages that you want the readers to remember from from your studies? So maybe Justine, go ahead and then yeah. Stefan. Yeah. So I think the big take-home message with this study is that functional MRI and marmoset are really a powerful tool to for studying primate sensory and cognitive function because we have we it's a kind of mix between all the advantage we can have with macaque and the thing we can study and all the advantage we can have with rodent world just with one species. So we can, we really have a lot of possibilities with this. And the advantage that we can see with this study, it's like you can have one animal, you can try to map thing with this animal and after you can use the same animal to go deeper so you can guide electrophysiological recording and go deeper in the comprehension of the system. Wonderful. Good take-home message. Stefan. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I definitely totally agree with Justine. So, um, and I also think for fMRI experiments in non-human primates, marmosets are definitely a lot easier to do than macaque monkeys. So we, we also ran fMRI experiments in macaques in my lab like 10 years ago, and Justine did that for a PhD in France. And it's a lot more difficult to do these experiments in macaques. Because, you, I mean, you have to keep the animal still, right? And it's one thing to keep the head still, that's you can do, but the body always can move around. And if the body moves, it totally destroys the field. So we find it's a lot easier to do this in the much smaller marmoset. So the animal is basically in this tube. And once the animals are in there, they actually don't move around much anymore. So the data quality we're getting from the marmoset imaging is a lot better than the quality we got from all of our, all our macaque imaging. So I think it's a really powerful technique. Yeah, and one of the big advantages I, I found with marmosets, uh, they are much more compliant than macaque. Because <laughs> macaque, it's, yeah, it's really a lot of training and you need to restrict them. We didn't need to restrict them to have data and it, you don't need a lot of months of training. So there is a really big advantage, at least for this kind of easy task. 
Yeah. So, so, so I mean, Mamo said there's really also the potential then to run a lot more animals. So most macaque studies, you will find there are two or three animals. And I mean, in this, in this particular paper, we also only had four marmosets, but that's really because right now we don't have that many marmosets in the lab available that we can implant. But theoretically, you could have a lot more animals because it doesn't take that long to train the animals. Wow. So you're really getting in, in the range that you have for rodent studies, where you have something maybe like 10 animals or even more. I think you all convinced us that this is a fascinating animal and, uh, and you gain fascinating insights into the awake behaving animals. So I... I really, I'm in awe of what you've done and uh, I hope the readers are in awe too. And it was great fun talking to you and I wish you all the very best, Justine. Get a great Thank job you. and uh, really keep nice. working on it, okay? And Stefan, nice. keep training all these amazing students. <laughs> all the very best, okay? Bye-bye. Yeah, <laughs> thanks so much, Nino. Yeah, bye. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.